All right. Welcome to the idea of the university. I'm here with David McCarricker and Anne Smellgrove. Smellgrove. How did I did I pronounce that right? Snellgrove with an Snellgrove. N. Yeah. Anne Snellgrove. And um, we're here. We're here to talk about a course coming up uh, by Theory Underground uh, titled "The Idea of the University," based on um, a book of the same name by Carl Jaspers. So, uh, welcome here, David and Anne. Um, why don't you introduce yourself? Welcome to the welcome to the channel. Well, thank you. First of all, it's a pleasure to be here, an honor to be here. Uh, I told Cadell uh, maybe a week and a half ago. I'm humbled by the fact that he's been doing this for a lot longer than I have, um, actively online, building organic community around philosophy. And so I really respect that. And uh, I think that it's what's needed, which is why I'm doing it as well. You know, Theory Underground looks to cultivate the kind of engagement and discussions that uh, I wish I had had at the university in a lot of ways. And so the this will be the first course that we do. And uh, the reason that it's the first one for Theory Underground is because I kind of want to build a good foundation. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about everything later. But yeah, I'm David McCarricker. Um, I have a master's uh, in critical theory and alternative education from Boise State University. Um, you can just call me Dave. Previously, I went by Theory Plebe online, so people still call me Plebe sometimes. And uh, yeah, it's an honor to be here. All right. Hello, my name is Anne Snellgrove. Um, I also graduated from Boise State with a bachelor's of science in social science. So sociology was kind of my main focus. I did a lot of research at the university um, about neoliberal higher education. And so it kind of plays right into the idea of the university. I also was lucky enough to get to help develop and teach a course at uh, Boise State last year um, called University Foundations 100 Is College Worth It? Um, outside of that though, I've known Dave for four and a half-ish years, we are engaged. So um, not, I mean, not only do I just support Dave because I'm your partner, but because I genuinely believe in the goal of the theory underground and making education and philosophy more accessible to a lot of people. So yeah, I'm also happy to be here. Thank you. All right. Welcome, welcome both of you. And maybe we should, we should start off with like the origin of theory underground. What is theory underground? Uh, and, and what are your, your visions and plans for it as, as you develop, of course, with the idea of the university being a, a foundational course as a part of, a part of the larger work? Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, oh God, you know, this is actually going to be the first time that I've done this on someone's platform. So, uh, I've actually kind of so far, I think in the launch and in the blog posts that I'd written about the name change and everything like that, I, I don't focus on the long-term vision or plan because that's part of the point of the name change was to actually lower the stakes in a sort of sense, because pre, prior to Theory Underground, it had been new symbolization project, new, new symbolization publishing and a new symbolization, the idea of a new symbolization is that politically and religiously um, today in the postmodern ideological scene, uh, we don't have viable alternatives to what currently exists. And we don't have any good ways forward in terms of 
uh, ways that people can work together uh, to to achieve a better uh, to achieve a better world that don't fall into um, the same sort of culture war tropes and scripts that have sort of monopolized the social change scene. And so part of the goal with new symbolization is like to get outside of the old um, ruts, scripts, and jargon and to uh, better familiarize ourselves with the fundamental questions, problems, uh, concerns, interests, and mostly just concepts uh, that we think would be necessary for a new symbolization. And so uh, part of my big realization was I'm not Jesus. I'm not John the Baptist. I'm not, you know, some prophetic figure or like, I'm not a Karl Marx even. I'm not someone who's going to come along and say, all right, everybody, I figured it all out. I read everything and here's all the solutions. I I see my role more as an educator. And I, I think the first thing is just to say, look, if you haven't really read a great text until you've read it three times, and we can talk about like the kind of functions of those three readings, like what that actually entails. Uh, but if you, but if it's true that you haven't really read something until you've read something three times, then none of us have really read almost anything. And uh, obviously not everything bears re- repeating, but great texts do. And there's this, there's this rush to change the world you know, like Marx's 11th thesis on Feuerbach, philosophers have only interpreted the world. The point is to change it. There's this rush to change, even in theory circles, to where it's like, but we don't ever really get acquainted with the contradictions and actually work through those, um, much less, uh, you know, what we don't really tarry with the negative, right? And so what I want to do with Theory Underground is to create a space where it's not about having the right takes or the, the correct strategy or the, the, oh, this is going to be the worldview that will change everything, but instead laying the groundwork and developing courses and materials and educational content that will help people in the future be able to hopefully do what we weren't able to do, you know? And so we're looking to the, to, to a future generation and trying to equip them by equipping ourselves to even be able to, to speak to them. As far as it being underground, it's not happening inside of the university as it's not institutionally supported by anything mainstream and that the mainstream academic monopolization of everything theory through the universities is part of the problem because we think that if that enlightenment ideal of people taking responsibility for their own immaturity and developing um you know, themselves to think, how do I think about things? How do I decide what's real? How do I think about reality? If people don't take, in order to follow through on that vision, um, we can't just be influencers who come along and say, we've got it all figured out. We actually need a bigger push in the theory world that breaks outside of academia and says, look, everybody, insofar as you want to be thinking about the future and social change, you have to be taking on that responsibility yourself, not turning to influencers. And do you want to, do you want to add anything to that? Um, I mean, obviously the theory underground is really Dave's undertaking, but I think like me being someone who's not fully immersed in the philosophy as much, I still see the importance of it as just being somewhere for people who like really want to get rigorous into texts and work just a place for anyone 
of any background class standing to come to. And so I just see it as really important, especially, you know, along with like what you're doing, just having these spaces that are outside of the university that are a lot more affordable and that actually care about pursuing truth and knowledge, not just for a grade or because it's going to get us a degree, but because it matters to us. And so I think it's super awesome what both of you are doing. And I'm excited to get to kind of be here along for the ride and participate in the ways that I can. So, yeah. Fantastic. There's so much there to, to, to respond to, but like just off the bat there, what you were saying, and when I was at university, I mean, it always, it always blew my mind when I met students who, whose motivation seemed to be coming for the degree or the grade. And, and, and sort of like, you know, I, I remember my first thought when I was entering community college, because I actually failed high school was like, well, I could, I could, I, I mean, I'm kind of internally motivated. I just, I'm just, interested in the truth. I don't really care about the grade or the degree or anything like that. And I think that just carries through kind of into, into to what I'm doing today. And I think what you guys are doing today, and that's kind of why I resonate with sort of the, let's say the ethos of, of theory underground. It's kind of, you know, I, I always say I was operating under the presupposition that kind of a naive presupposition in university that the higher I go up the ladder, the closer I would be getting to truth. And then sort of the inverse was the case that I just got closer and closer to sort of bureaucratic discussions and further and further away from, let's say, deep discussions or something like that. And that might be connected a little bit to a, an idea I wanted to touch on with both of you, which is this idea about um, education under the neoliberal university. And I know that's something you guys both care about um, a lot in a sort of critical through, you know, through a critical lens. And of course, that's sort of deep in, in critical theory today. Um, but it might not be widespread knowledge. I remember when I was actually, I was in grad school in a sort of a biological anthropology department and all of the social theory people would always be talking about neoliberalization, but I actually had no idea what that meant at the time. So for the lar larger audience who might not know what exactly that means, can you talk a little bit about what it means to, to, to say, for example, that the university has been underneath a sort of political regime of neoliberalization and what that might mean for learning outcomes and experience and university life? And you should totally take it here. Okay, cool. Yeah, because that was um, the Boise State University had this great program called the Intermountain Social Research Lab. And basically the head of the sociology department was really interested in this idea of neo the neoliberalization of the university. And so I got to do some research with them for two years. And I think when we talk about the neoliberalization of the university, we talk about basically making what used to be like a public good, a public service into a business model. And so the university is going to be working now rather than for the benefit of students, they're going to be working to try to make the most profit for themselves. There's going to be a lot of corporate involvement, you know, helping develop classes, having presence, like advertising around the campus. And so it really is like I, in trying to explain this to like 18 year old students who were forced to be there was we're turning college and school into a business model. And so outcomes kind of what that looks like is learning becomes a means to an end rather than the end in itself. Um, so you have a lot more kind of standardized testing, standardized work, students aren't reading as much, um, professors, because there's so much more bureaucracy and bureaucratic paperwork that they might have to go through, um, they're going to have 
less opportunity to have like real one-on-one -on -one time with students and have the time and energy and resources to be available to students. Along with that, you know, treating the school as a business model and with the main goal being profit, you're going to see a lot more focus on the aspects of the university that bring in profit, mainly sports, like the recreational complex. I mean, one university in the United States, I can't remember the name, like built a lazy river in their campus with student funds, um, you know, coming from that extra however much you have to pay as a student. And so it really is just kind of degrading the actual academic quality of the university and really just trying to pump out students who have a lot of debt into like corporate culture. I don't know, Dave, if you want to add more to that. Yeah, one of the things that comes to mind for uh, me as a Boise State alum alumni is that the library is called the Albertsons Library. The arena while I was there was called the Taco Bell Arena. The engineering building, I think it's like called the Micron building. Micron is a sort of, it's a software company, you know. Uh, Simplot has a bunch of buildings across campus. They Simplot makes all of the potatoes that you eat as French, fri fr French fries at uh, McDonald's. So when you see Simplot, you should think McDonald's uh, because that's their, their number one customer. And so the, I mean, which is kind of neat, by the way, because as an Idaho boy, I can go anywhere in the world and eat some Idaho potatoes. That's pretty cool. But I mean, <laughs> come on. What is Simplot and Micron's interest in the university? And on the one hand, you know, it's all about these parents who send their kids off for their first big step into the world and the parents want their kids to succeed. And then they, they come and they visit for a, for a, a football game usually. And uh, the kids get together, the students get together with their parents and they go to a football game and there's all this branding everywhere. And so the companies have a vested interest in associating this time of your life with these corporate brands. And I, no one can blame them for that. That's just advertising. Who cares, right? Who cares? I don't care. But what matters about it is that the, the Micron and Simplot people in Idaho get their people on the Idaho Board of Education in this for the state. They get their people on the various boards at the university. And now it's not just about branding. It's about changing the curriculum and the what's required in order to get the degree changing all of the prereqs and the goals to make students coming out of this university ideal recruit recruits for their companies as employees. And obviously most people coming out of the university aren't going to get jobs there. So why are we getting this fine-tuned education that puts us on that track, right? Well, it's because they want to pull from the cream of the crop people who are most passionate and excited and whatever. And it makes sense from their side. It th That's not evil. It's not evil, but there is a sort of uh, tragedy occurs when there are conflicts of interests that go unnoticed or not brought out into the daylight. This is one of the things I get from dialectics is that contradiction needs to be worked through, not just, you don't just wave your hands and run the other way when there's a contradiction, you got to work through it. And so when we come to the conflicts of interests at the university, um, 
we have to think what are the competing interests of the different organizations, groups, departments, disciplines, fields, funding. Their business is obviously one of the big ones Ann just brought up. Politics is another one. And today it's pretty much right wingers are going to be the only people who really talk about it usually at the at the at the university level. Um, at the high school level, there's obviously all this talk of right wingers who don't want certain books read in high schools or lower level uh, elementary school. Um, and so there's like book burnings or whatever in the last couple of years, and that's serious. But on the other side, on the university side, there is also a sort of suffocating culture of, you know, th there are certain things that one says or is supposed to believe and then supposed to, and then certain things you're not supposed to question. And that obviously runs counter to the ideal of the university, which is supposed to be a place where all genuine truth seekers regardless of what their different beliefs might be, are able to be in a rigorous discourse and dialogue uh, to work through things and to tr try to bring all of their different contradictory viewpoints to some higher level, right? There's supposed to be a dialectic there and that's lacking. And part of it's business, part of it's politics, and a big part of it is bureaucracy caring about litigation culture, which is to say like, they don't want to get sued. And so- these different forces are always at play in the university. And so the only way to come back from that is not to just critique, oh, this is business. Oh, this is politics. Oh, this is bureaucracy. But it's to instead do a positive critique. That's our big thing. Positive critique. What's a positive critique in this sense? It just means what Carl Jaspers is doing in the idea of the university is he's fleshing out the idea almost in a platonic sense. What is the idea that gave birth to the institution? How does the institution fall short of the idea? And how can we uh, judge the institution without a more fully fleshed out um, articulation and idea of the university itself? Yeah, fantastic. Um, and I can connect that to, I love this idea of positive critique. So like, I feel like when I was in university and again, sort of had sort of my preconceptions about what was going on in the humanities, it was of course very, my, my, my preconception was that it was very critical and very deconstructive. Um, and so I like this emphasis on positive critique and I could connect that a little bit with the difference between the dialectics of Kant and the dialectics of Hegel because one of the emphases that, that Hegel puts on in the science of logic is that Kant's dialectic ends in a negative, meaning we can never get at the truth in itself. We can never get at the thing in itself. So it kind of ends in a negative, like where you're just stuck in the contradictions of reason um, or what Kant would call the antinomies of reason. Whereas for Hegel, he's working very hard to try to get at the objective concept or the objective idea, trying to derive it. Not really, I mean, I really see his goals and aims as in alignment with Plato's just perhaps in a different historical era. Um, but the emphasis there is that you don't just critique to critique, but you critique to affirm something potentially better. And I see that also in your work here with, with Theory Underground. So on the one hand, we do have the neoliberalization of, of, of the, the institutions. And, and as you guys are saying, that's putting profit ahead of everything in a way that can be just, you know, have ridiculous situations, right? Like, and you were describing a lot of those ridiculous situations, you know, um, on the other hand, there is this course, the idea of the university, which is exploring basically like the platonic ideal of the university. And one of the things Jasper says in the book is 
irrespective of where funding is coming from. You know, he does talk about funding a little bit at the beginning where he's talking about, you know, you could get it from, um, you know, inheritance, you could get it from investors, you could get it from an outside group, you know, a, a philanthropist. But the overall point is that the investment does not distort the community's search for truth. Um, and I think from what I'm gathering here, from what you're saying, the neoliberalization of the university does distort that and it puts profit ahead of truth. I know that there are some other people like in the culture wars who are claiming that um, there are also moralistic agendas being put in, in favor of truth. So could you talk about a little bit how you see this conflict between neoliberalization and the search for truth and perhaps how this has impacted your experience of the university? And you want to go first? Sure. <laughs> I was going to have you go first. Um, Cause that's like a big question to think about. Um, I mean, yeah, as far as like how I kind of saw this like difference with like the, the neoliberalization versus like my personal desire for truth in the university, there was definitely a clash. I came in like really optimistic, really excited to meet a lot of people who were like me, who just wanted to have discussions all the time and really like rigorously read theory and read like hard texts and really grow as a learner and a thinker. Um, I mean, I think because there aren't a lot of students like that, the university structures their lessons and kind of like structures their courses around this ideal that, okay, the level has been lowered. We're now, we're not requiring like readings, you know, you're reading maybe some articles here and there. Throughout my entire time in the sociology department, outside of the research that I did, I didn't read like, a, I was never assigned a single primary text uh, from any like actual real important sociologist. Um, I read a, a young adult novel in a 400 level theory of social change class um, rather than reading like actual <laughs> theory. Um, and so I think like it really, in my experience, really lowered the level of the content and the curriculum of the classes. And I think professors just expect that. They expect that, you know, students are coming in knowing, okay, they're gonna have a lot of debt. They just are here to get a job. Like the whole university culture just kind of promotes that like, oh yeah, you come here, you have some fun, you get your degree. That makes you worthy of a professional job. And um, so this, professors know this and they kind of structure their classes in that way. So it was definitely like lacking in real structure and content in a majority of my classes, which was really frustrating being someone who was at the university to pursue truth and, and knowledge and grow as a thinker. And so that's kind of where I saw the divide is especially like within the classroom. So Dave, I don't know what else, you know, your experiences mm -hmm. were. I just want to say mm -hmm. quick before Dave jumps in, it's just a crime that you were never assigned a primary text. That's one of the things that I, <laughs> I want to emphasize in philosophy board was like, no, let's let's read the greatest works that have ever been written and let's talk about them. Sorry, right. And even in the classes, like I took two philosophy classes just out of interest. And even in those ones, you're just getting like a tiny little blurb and it's not really structured and they just like kind of assume that you're not going to get it. And so they go, OK, well, I tried. Let's move on to this person now and not like really giving us 
the the time and respect to like let's let's make your brains work let's let's think here and let's just focus on one or two things it's kind of this fast pace like okay we're onto this subject okay we're onto this subject got to get you as much information as you can pass the test to get the credits rather than just like slowing down we're gonna read two books this semester all you have to do is write an essay about it it was a lot of like uh and i think dave will be able to speak to this but a lot of uh, busy work Sounds like it's also it just before Dave jumps in as well. Like it sounds like also like the the digitization of the university, like the TikTokization of the unit. It's like like a you know like it's it's almost like we're already in accelerationism kind of thing. Like you know anyway, go ahead, Dave. Yeah, hundred percent. Though I want to, I mean, I'll use a story that was that had a profound impact on me early into my academic career. I was a non traditional student. When I started, I kind of was under the assumption, like you, that this is people come here because this is they're in a time in their life where they're going to give themselves over to the pursuit of truth primarily. Um, and I also had uh, I, I also burnt out on trying to get a leg up in the world through working at entry level jobs. You know, that was uh, I, I had also tried to apprentice for various uh, trades. And uh, really, I, I found myself just being like, no, I, I, I just need to spend some time just reading and getting to know myself and my place in the world and, and before I make any more big decisions about where I'm going. So I went to the university. And I think I already told this story once, so I'll keep it short. The first grade I got back in my political and social philosophy course was an F and it was on the weekly written, you know, reflection. It's like, how do you fail a written reflection? But when I went to the professor's office hours, he told me that philosophy is not something that you can um, do on the side while focusing on math homework all the time. Like, no, he said the same way that you sit there for five hours in the library working on your math problems you actually have to do that with philosophy. You can't read it at the beach. You can't read it in a half hour. You can't go off of Sparks Notes. You can't do a good reads review or watch a YouTube video. You have to actually read through it and then try to make sense of it on your own, or you're not going to get anything out of it. And you know, you get out of it what you put into it. And uh, so it was that sort of slap upside the face, like in the first. I mean, and I mean literally, he slapped me upside the face. He was just like, Psst. "No, I'm just kidding." But no, it, it was, if it wasn't for that figurative slap, then I, I wouldn't have gotten as serious as I did as early as I did. And I, fa I fear that I would have fallen off. I would have probably burnt out. I would have found myself doing a lot of busy work. I would have been getting good grades in my math and science for a while, but I would have, my soul would have been suffering. And so I would have dropped out. I'm pretty sure of that. But instead, because I was forced to really take Plato's Republic seriously, and then all the other texts that followed from that, which were also primary because that professor respected primary works, I, I, I was profoundly impacted and it changed my life forever. And it made me realize that there's more important things. And so the, the, the problem is, and this is something that the professor, Dr. Cates at North Idaho College, he always deals with is people say that he goes too hard on you. You know, there was actually a student strike against him um, before I actually went to North Idaho College. I found, I met one of the people, the people who had organized a strike against Dr. Cates. And that person was like, yeah, no, I used to hate his guts. It took a while for me to 
kind of understand where he's coming from. And now I respect him like crazy. So this person who had been in a factory in a union, he was like in his forties, he had actually led the student walkout and, and they'd written stuff to the faculty, the administration and the faculty complaining about how harsh this professor's grading was. He had actually had a change of heart over the years by the time I met him. Um, but the other administration uh, and faculty at North Idaho College, they're always pulling up his courses for review. And if it wasn't for the fact that students keep coming to testify about how, how fundamental of an impact Dr. Cates had on them, they would have already stopped letting him keep these courses going. They would have, they would have discontinued these courses. Um, and Dr. Cates told me that in, uh, in actual faculty meetings, though, um, other professors had looked at him and said that he needed to lower the bar. And they, they were just, I don't know how mask off they were actually about this, but they, they said, they said, you need to make it easier. You need to stop going so hard on them. And then when, when Dr. Cates was saying, well, like they need a real challenge, like, how are they going to be that they can't apply to UC Berkeley if I don't you know, make sure that at their associate level, they, they actually have a real challenge. And he said that the response is, yeah, but these kids just want jobs and they're rural kids. We've got a lot of rural kids here. What does rural mean? Rural is academic academic ease for white trash. Yeah. That's what they mean. They mean these kids are white trash. They just need better jobs. Stop giving them such a hard time. And he said, I used to teach inner city black youth and it was the same thing there. You need to lower the bar. You're, you're, you, these kids just need jobs. They're never going to get out of the ghetto if you don't lower the bar. And so he said he was facing the same thing with inner city youth as he was dealing with here at a rural community college. Mm-hmm. So this is what happens when we turn the idea of the university into nothing more than, oh, these are our customers and our, our job is to help them get better jobs. All right. There's a lot of ideas here going through my head. So like, it's very clear to me that, you know, the picture you guys are painting here that the university is, is under some sort of business, you know, it's, it's being subsumed or sublated under, under a business model. And, and basically, you know, what the university is or what the university is becoming is a lot different than let's say the platonic ideal that, that Jasper's is trying to derive in his work. Um, you know, and and specifically, it's just this 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 factory for producing people who might be uh, um, candidates for hire in corporate America and and, and stuff like this. Um, now, Jasper's does. I don't don't want to get too far into the book so quick, but there is a point Jasper's makes in the book about how university education is. He says multiple times, university education is not high school education. It's it's, it's not for everyone. It, it, and he even puts some sort of framing on it like that universities for a very specific type of person. And I feel like we have, um, you know, in sort of generalizing, automating, universalizing even the idea of the university, you know, like where the idea was at one point, okay, we're all going to go to high school. Now the idea is we're all going to go to college or we're all going to go to university, you know, that you know, I, you bring up this idea, perhaps that there's there's a watering down of the standard that 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 goes on and the consequence of that, and and that's a difficult idea for me to reconcile with, in the sense that, 
you know, in my ideal, you know, you, you have this idea that, well, everyone should have a chance to go to university and everyone should, should have a chance to, to pursue truth on that level. But Jaspers brings up the point that maybe not, maybe it's more selective. Maybe there's only a certain type of person who is not, it's not about necessarily like, um, you know, a one type of intelligence thing or anything like that, but there's a certain type of person that is going to be inclined towards the type of truth search that the university should hold. Mm. And, you know, as so, for example, in building something like philosophy portal, I definitely see in the first few courses I've done, not everyone has this sort of inclination. Now, it's very interesting to, to encounter and be around the type of people who do and to try to build that and try to foster that and try to go really deep as you can go. And I meet a lot of people like that. Um, but it's certainly not everyone. And so what emotions or what feelings do you have that come up when I, when I bring up this topic? And, you know, as educators or as people sort of trying to develop courses in this direction, you know, how should we think about this problem? I know it's a very, you know, this, this is the difficult, this is a difficult question. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I it's think... the type of question we would go to in the course, but yeah, and go ahead. Yeah. You know, that, that is tough because obviously we want like higher education and, and opportunities to, yeah, like have a degree to have higher paying jobs. Like we want the opportunity for everyone, but in terms of like what the idea of the university is supposed to be, that really, I think is it's such an independent journey that like just to have an institution that is open to anyone at any point in their life, whether they've just come out of high school and are ready to keep building or they need to have one, two, three, 10 years of time just to go drink and party and travel. And then they're ready to, you know, get, I don't want to say get serious, but to like stop maybe the, the partying and like really focus on that pursuit of truth for a while. And so I think there just, you know, there just needs to be that, that space. And ideally it, it would be the university, but having something like the theory underground or the philosophy portal is just places where people who want to, to really challenge their minds and, and grow because it matters to them as a human. And, and I think just reconciling with that, not everyone is going to have that interest. Some people are going to, like get really, really into their, their music and, or pursuing other passions really seriously. And some people are just going to be happy going to the bar every weekend and, and having, um, a family and like living, you know, a life like that, where they're not super into theory, which is super valid. And I think with where the university stands right now, we just think that, oh, you have to come here and get a good job. And if you don't, you don't like, you don't deserve a home security, like you're, you're less than. And so just reconciling with this doesn't make us like morally superior by any means trying to, you know, read hard philosophy and theory, but it's just an option. If, if you want that in your life is kind of my, my response <laughs> to such a deep mm. question. Yeah. And these mm. are the types of questions I imagine that like, we're going to try and bring out it in the course, right? Like, and, and go deeper on these types of things. I mean, before I get your response, Dave, it's like, you know, after sort of going deeper onto the idea of the university by Jaspers, it's like, and the way, and, you know, and contrasting that with how you guys are describing specifically the American system, it's like, it's like we've, and, you know, to phrase it kind of in a Hegelian way, it's, it's like we've lost the idea completely. Like, 
like it's like there is no idea anymore it's just you know it, it I, I get and and, and it, it maybe it's not a coincidence that i feel like the last few decades and the, the decades in which i was developing as an intellect were at the same time kind of the decades of the degradation and the loss of philosophy in some sense you know and mm. so it's no it's no coincidence i don't think that you know, we've kind of lost the idea or the concept of the university. It's kind of like, oh, now it's gone. Like we really took it for granted. And maybe these little underground initiatives are really where the idea needs to grow. So Dave, uh, mm. if you have any comments on that, go for it. Yeah, I would just, so ca- I want to caution against anyone who's watching us talk about this from, from maybe taking away or deducing from what we've said so far the idea that it's therefore worthless or that the idea is completely dead. I it's the idea could not be completely dead. If the idea was completely dead, there would be no more great professors in the university, but there are great professors in the university. Therefore the idea is alive. There are still great students in the university. Therefore the idea is still alive, but it's suffering. And the idea is suffering because we live in a scientific technological instrumentalized age ideas are not easily instrumentalized they're usually things that are good in themselves the idea of instrumentalization is that the only things that get any attention are going to be the things that are good towards some other means or or that are a means towards some other end whether that's profit political power whatever so with the uh your question I would say the the it's not that the idea is dead, but that a lot of people who go to it for that reason um, drop out, or once they've graduated, they decide that they couldn't do another fifteen years of that just to get tenure, right? And so it, it is creating underground theorists everywhere. Everywhere you have a dropout who still wants to pursue truth, you have a budding underground theorist and obviously you might just be an underground scientist who's who's toying around with gadgets and ai in your garage or whatever but uh what makes you a theorist is that you're trying to understand right and so if you're trying to understand why you dropped out if you're trying to understand why the idea was so hard to find instantiations of at the university then yeah i think that you're a budding underground theorist and the, I was going to make a comparison though, to say that the institution of marriage is falling apart, but the idea of marriage and of love is not dead. People are still moved by the idea, but because we live in this instrumentalized age, no one talks about the idea. They just talk about the institution. Oh, the institution's in crisis. Oh, the institution needs to be salvaged. Oh, these are the things that go against the institution. Oh, these are the things that, oh, look, look at how high the divorce rate is. Look, people, as soon as it gets uh, uncomfortable or inconvenient, then they just end the relationship. Okay, that's not a positive critique. A positive critique would have recourse to the idea. And so it's the job of philosophers to say, we're not just a department that is equal to construction management. We're not just a department that is equal to, to, to whatever you were doing in biology. No, we have an intimate relation to all of these other fields 
but it is our job to say how they fit together. And it's our job to say what ideas these fields or disciplines ultimately serve because we're the ones whose task it is to think what it, what ideas even are, where do they come from? And, 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 and if we are in this complete uh, bio constructivist, reductivist, instrumentalized era and philosophers decide, oh yeah, we'll just act like we're a construction management department, just like anyone else. And we'll just kind of work in our little corner, work on niche little problems. And if we're not thinking about the whole, then it's our fault. It's not the fault of the person who wants to do construction management. It's not the, it's not the fault of the, the administration or the faculty who are involved in any other corner of the university. It always comes back to philosophy because philosophy is the origin of ideas in this rigorous sense. And so we're the ones who have to do something, whether we're, and the thing is, is you can be in the university or outside of the university and still keep the idea alive in your classroom or in your daily walk of life, in your practice. Absolutely. So, yeah. well, nothing, nothing gets me more excited than, than someone getting super passionate about philosophy there. He's getting so passionate. He had to take a drink. <laughs> like that. Yeah. He's yeah. like, he just. I'm gonna go do, just ran gonna go do some, meter dash there. I'm gonna go do some push-ups now. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of something of what you were saying reminds me of something J.K. Chesterton uh said about Plato, where he said sometimes Plato would talk about ideas as if people didn't exist. And the way you were talking about ideas was the opposite, where you know, if as long as there are people there, the ideas still exist. And I, mm-hmm. I like I like that 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 emphasis and 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 at the same time, you know. Um, from that point of view, we do have a situation where people do not talk about ideas anymore. And, and, and your example with the institution of marriage and the idea of marriage is a perfect example. And the thing is, is that if people don't talk about the idea of marriage, or if, for example, if people don't talk about the idea of the university, then guess what? When things get difficult, it's going to fall apart. So you need to have an idea because if you don't have an idea yet, precisely well, what happens is you'll, you'll go to pleasure. You know, it's the idea that will help you go above pleasure and will 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 inspire you to that higher standard. And and precisely to be inspired, we need to have people that embody that idea or else it's just an abstract idea. It's disembodied. So, you know, all of these things are really complex, but at the same time, it really hits home, you know, how important it is that this work you guys are doing is being done. And it's kind of also inspiring when you say something like, Every time there is, you know, when the university doesn't have an idea and there are all these truth seekers that are going to drop out because the university doesn't have the idea there. Well, it's not going to kill the idea. It's just going to create a network of underground theorists. And that's sort of an also inspiring notion. And it's like, it's kind of like that, you know, I was talking with Mikey a little bit about it's like kind of hip hop. It's kind of punk rock. You know, it's, it's underground, you know, and, 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 and it get, has that sort of has that sort of energy to it. Um, which I think is, is, you know, at the same time as it's, you know, not a good idea. Did you want to comment on that? Well, yeah, sorry. I didn't, I, 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 I want you to finish. Okay. The, well, and it's, I, I'm glad you brought up the punk rock hip hop underground thing because, uh, especially with the young Zizeki and crew, which is just one click within a broader underground, right? Every underground require, or any scene requires groups of friends. You know, um, and that's one of the things that Carl Jaspers talks about is that the idea of the university 
uh, and, and any sort of like uh, truth deriving or emerging field or discipline it doesn't come from the university itself. It always comes from some smaller nucleus that is usually in relation to the university, either they're employed there or they're in dialogue with people at the university. Um, so the, 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 any healthy scene requires diversity in groups and, and, and maybe even some friendly competition between those groups. It should, it should never get toxic. Right. But the point is, and the, the reason I brought up the young Jijikians is like, uh, Andrew and Nick, but also Mikey, they all bring rap and hip hop into it because that's kind of their roots. Uh, whereas I bring post hardcore, post punk, pop punk, deathcore, metal, all of this heavy stuff. Cause that's my teenage years. That's my early twenties. And, uh, Andrew, Andrew's cool because he master signified bodies. He's that he's actually like, he comes from both worlds. So he's kind of the bridge there between those two worlds. And so we make a lot of memes about this, but the main point is just to draw that comparison because once you stop thinking about it as, oh, it's me and my group of truth seekers versus the world and you, and you realize, oh, it's a scene and we're like a band in that scene. And a scene takes all types. It takes really high level, experimental, avant-garde, super skilled bands. And they usually don't pull as big a crowds. And then it also takes people that know three chords, but they're charismatic and they, they bring the big crowds and like getting the, the booking agencies and the venues and the different bands to have, even though they're going to be competitive at, at the end of the day with some of their interests to get them to have working cooperative relationships and to foster a healthier discourse is, is really important. And so drawing these connections between underground music and underground theory just felt important but then there's also the underground in London. The underground, the London underground is the subway system there. The, the logo to Theory Underground is actually ripped off directly from the London underground. You rep, did you recognize it? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I've been, I've, I lived in London for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of Americans won't get it until they go to London. But right. the, uh, the, the it's basically the same logo it's just been it's been made our own but the my, the point there mind the gap that, yes the well theory underground is a triple entendre theory oh, please okay, yeah yeah you know you're competing theory, with jay-z now yes th who's that <laughs> said you're competing oh, jay -Z. with jay-z yeah yeah, yeah. triple yeah, entendre yeah, yeah. Triple entendre. Well, on the one hand, theory play went underground, it, you know, is, is owning that position and, and then trying to theorize what that means. So that's the first one. Second one was this music underground analogy. And then the third one is the analogy to the London underground. And that's why I say all aboard. And then I push this button. Can you hear that? No, you can't hear, I didn't hear anything. Uh, okay. For some, so for some reason, it's not playing over Zoom, but it does play over stream. But I have a button that has train whistles. Anyway, the point is, is like all aboard train whistles. Well, what's the train in the analogy? It's a line of thought. Every So thinking about the idea of the university, that is a line of thought that connects to another line of thought called critical pedagogy, which connects to another line of thought. And there's all these different lines of thought, but they're they're not going to be productive lines of thought if you're not reading, writing, and having rigorous conversations with other people who did similar readings and similar writing.
so even if we're outside of the university, even if we're not grading our assignments, even if we're not doing a lot of the busy work that we would have done in the university, we actually have to raise the stakes and raise the difficulty level on ourselves to try to get that thing that we weren't getting when we were there. And so when I say like, there's a line of thought departing all aboard with the idea of the university, the point is, look, you can have conversations about the problems at the university or what the ideal properly should be. You can have those conversations with anybody, but a lot of times that's just going to be talking and you're going to fall right back into scripts. If you're not talking with people who have done primary textual readings on the topic, and if you're not talking to people who've spent a lot of time after writing, then thinking through these things and writing about it for themselves, right? Without that basis in the textual life and, and, and the right, the writing as thinking without that basis, it's just talking. It's not a real dialectical conversation. And so, uh, I, I like this, this idea of like a train is departing, get on. It's not like it's never going to come back. It's not like it's never going to depart again, but it is a prerequisite for going deeper on this topic with other people. And so we want to make spaces with the forum where it's like, you can say stuff here and you can presuppose that anybody in this forum community already did the reading and already has some of these same questions in mind. And so, and someone who's reading Being in Time with me in the summer, because I'll be teaching Being in Time in the summer, um, might not have done the idea of the university, might not have done the PMC, might not have done Zizek's For They Know Not What They Do, which are other courses that are coming out of Theory Underground. And that's fine, but there's going to be different forums dedicated to these different lines of thought. And then if it's five years from now that you finally get around to saying, okay, I'm at a point in my life where now I want to interrogate the idea of the university, the train's still there. Go to the site. The course is still available after the fact. The forum is still alive. The people who were involved, some of them are still involved in the forum. And so even though you're taking it after the fact, hopefully you'll be plugged into the conversation anyway. So that's that's the train metaphor I wanted to talk about. Great. Yeah, you know, it's, it's yeah, good that, good that you went a little bit more into that. Um, and yeah, this 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 band scene metaphor, I also find quite, quite helpful. I mean, because it, it forces you to think about what's going on here as an ecology. And, and now in terms of thinking about it as an ecology, as opposed to say like an individualistic or just a group thing, mm -hmm. um, you know, well, by necessity, an ecology has a diversity of groups and there's conflict and competition. I mean, every ecology is competitive and actually in the natural world quite violent and 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 uh and that raises some some i think for my mind and sort of my experience in this ecology because i still think it's still quite new and i still think it's quite perhaps red and tooth and claw type of thing is is that is that there, there it's it's hard to know the boundaries and it's hard to know what ethical conflict is and it's hard to know where cooperation starts and ends and it's hard to know who's operating on what presupposition and what you know who's looking for good faith dialogue who's not looking for good faith dialogue and all of these things and then there's all sorts of political economic you know things where you are you know like at least for me and i think for you as well like you are sort of building a small business and in that sense we're not anti-business but the point is, is that the profit isn't the primary motive the truth is the primary motive and keeping it that way and, and so forth like that but my question here is about um you know how do you read the ecology how do you think about the ecology and you know what have been some of the problems maybe don't need to get into like specific problems but like 
you know, um, well, let me, let's talk about this right now. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm hosting, I'm building philosophy portal, you're building theory underground, but you know, I see like there's potential for synergies and stuff like that. So how, how do we, how do we, I suppose, um, navigate the early ecological days of this type of underground theory type of work? Or do you have any ideas about that? I mean, it, there's difficult ethical problems, I think, that come up. <laughs> the Maybe ethical if- problems, the ethical problems for me mostly come down to wanting to create a space where free thought and truth seeking are the uh, sort of primary thing I, although i say over over truth seeking i would just i'd say what 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 frames it better is understanding through concepts um uh, which is part of truth seeking but I, I i just think that saying understanding through concepts and interpretation that's important you want to have a variety of of, of viewpoints but not just viewpoints with opinions but actually basis in texts and uh but but the problem with that is we live in a in a highly politicized culture war moment. And a lot of people attracted to the idea of free thinking and free thought are on the right. And their, their, their idea is all of the problems with education comes from the overrepresentation of liberals in, in the educational scene and in Hollywood, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, um, pretty much everything should be everything that's not okay in liberal spaces should be okay in a genuine truth seeking space. And I'm sympathetic to the perspective, but I have to draw lines somewhere. And that's one of the difficult things that I've been, that's a place that I've been put in it after a decade of philosophical dialogue with different people, and and I have conversations with with uh, I've I, I wouldn't say Nazis, but you know I've I've had I've had genuine philosophical dialogue with um, various stripes of right winger that included um, a person who was like openly like white nationalist. And no, I didn't. It's not like we were doing podcasts or anything like that. We weren't doing podcasts together. Um, but you know, I met him in real life, and uh, I didn't know what his political beliefs were at first. And then there just became a point where I was like, well, I, this is a real crisis. Anna and I were on a hike, actually, and we were talking about it. It's like, we're there. I want to live in a world where politically you can say what you want and you could do what you want. As long as you're leaving other people alone, there's a lot of wiggle room for people to be able to work through ideas. And so then I tried to treat individuals that way in my personal life. Okay, but political and personal, though there's a lot of overlap, it's not always the same thing because at the end of the day, just because I want someone to be able to exist and not be put in prison or some extermination camp for having different beliefs than me, doesn't mean I have to associate with them. So we're not dealing with any theory underground gulags here, you know what I'm saying? Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) Not not yet. Right, not not yet. No, it's interesting. Ever. On on this point, I just want to make a quick point that I was just reading about what happened when Hegel died uh, to his his you know to the German idealist school. And what's interesting is that as soon as Hegel died, the school fractured between left, right, and center Hegelians. Right. And so it's, it's so interesting how politics is is obviously so polarizing, 
and and create so many issues about boundaries and and precisely you know where do you draw the line and it's and it's precise like and I think it's worth you know I'll throw it back to you but just thinking about this question is when you know you have a white nationalist say you have say say you have a black nationalist or something like that like whatever 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 yeah. the controversial idea is the question how how do you know how do you contain that space for difficult dialogue you know because yeah. I, I think if you if if you push it if you push it underground then it's 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 going to potentially become cancerous yeah you know and and so anyways i'll throw it back to you but i just I, the question that i run through my mind is how how do we build the containment space where difficult dialogues can happen actually slavoj zizek brought this up in surplus enjoyment that the university shouldn't be a safe space. The world is not a safe space. And the university mm -hmm. should be a place where you can have difficult conversations, basically. And, and it's mm -hmm. a containment problem about difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. It is. And it's one of the things, actually, I want, I want Anne to be able to address this because she just finished that book the coddling of the American mind by Jonathan Haidt and right. someone else. And uh, I, I'm wondering if I share my screen. Oh, it says host disabled participant screen sharing. I was going to show. I can, I can open that. You can share your screen now, I think. Okay. I, I, I have a bunch of uh, memes here that are Jasper memes. Can everybody see this, this meme here? I got you. Yeah, I think we can all see it. Yep. Okay. So um, there's, there's uh, four memes that are you know, various uh, stereotypical Wojaks from the meme scene um, saying something people say about universities and then Jasper's with the boss sunglasses kind of coming back at them with an actual quote from the book. And the one that I want to highlight is the, is the stereotypical SJW social justice warrior uh, Wojak crying with the thick rim glasses and the red hair Say and, and it says it says beside that Brown University student in 2015 at the on-campus safe space with cookies, coloring books, bubbles, and Play-Doh. Quote, <laughs> quote, I was feeling bombarded by a lot of viewpoints that really go against my dearly and closely held beliefs. This is a real quote from a real situation. And I wouldn't have known about it if Anne hadn't have told me. But before I hand it over to her, I'm going to read the Jasper's comeback. He says, to be permeated by the idea of a university is part of a way of life. It is the will to search and seek without limitation, to allow reason to develop unrestrictedly, to have an open mind, to leave nothing unquestioned, to maintain truth unconditionally. The university seeks or university keeps itself distinct from sects churches and fanatical groups which seek to impose their own outlook upon others the university does this because it wants to thrive in freedom only and would perish rather than carefully shelter itself from unfamiliar ideas and withdraw from intellectual conflict where fundamentals are involved and uh i i i, I the before handing it over though i'll just say that this problem goes back to the origin of the university socrates was put to death for at a certain point challenging the fundamental presuppositions and values of Athenian society. And 
one might say, oh, well, that's terrible. They shouldn't have done that to him. He didn't say that. Socrates never said they shouldn't have laws. Socrates never said they shouldn't put me to death. He he instead said when they all said, look, man, we can get you out of prison. We can get you out of the out of the city state here. We can get you somewhere to safety. He said, nah. I'm going to make them all sit with what they've decided here. And so the, the tragedy is not that professors sometimes get laid off. It's not even that the culture of the institution is permeated with a sort of fear of, of, of self-censorship and silencing be, or because of a fear of repercussions. Um, people can only make a stand and do the courageous thing and pursue truth in that context. And that context has never not been with us. Right. And so it's it's not a unique or new problem, though it's reached a new level of intensity and more people are worrying about the problem because more people are expected to go to college. So this used to be a problem for elite or, you know, children of aristocrats. Now it's a problem for basically anybody who's not working manual labor, who's got to go for some kind of a specialized degree. And so there's there's a lot more rage about it because there's a lot more people having to deal with it. But uh but it's not a pro. It's not. It's not. It's not a unique or new, and that's my main thing is to say. Uh, and it's not. Oh, I have a lot more thoughts, but I want to hand it over to Anne, and I'm going to turn my camera off, and I'll be right back. I just want to say quickly that, like this, this, oh, yeah. you know, the emphasis with Jasper sort of saying that you know to be permeated by the idea of the university, and um, you know, the university keeps itself distinct from sex, churches, and fanatical groups. It, it's kind of as though. You know, I've, I've always seen the woke movement as kind of this weird, unconscious immersion of a type of religious type of thought, which is which appears secular, but it, it, it actually is enacted in a religious type of way in a, in a, in a strange way. You know, it's, it's, it's a yeah. weird. I, I think that's where we need to think about the unconscious as well. But and go ahead. Yeah. So um Last month, I finished the book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, and basically the authors kind of highlight what they see the problem is right now in the university. And so they talk about three kind of untruths that are believed by a lot of incoming college students and therefore the college campus, which is the idea that um, the culture is like us. It's an us versus them world. The idea that what doesn't kill you makes you weaker not stronger. And then the idea that, um, oh, that you should always trust your feelings. And so they talk about the ways in which that manifests within the classroom specifically um, as reactions to ideas that might be challenging, uncomfortable, go against our own beliefs, gender identities, like whatever you might want to say or, or whatever it might be. But so that example in, in the meme was just one of like the many, many examples where students felt like physically unsafe because of a controversial idea or because of something that maybe was a little bit more conservative to them. Like, you know, I'm sure maybe you've heard of like when Milo Yiannopoulos was touring the country, there were mass riots on college campuses and people were getting their heads bashed in by like protesters who were, you know, supposedly on the right side of history. Um, and so, yeah, they kind of like highlight that culture and then talk about where in society they think that kind of comes from. And a lot of their focus was on like uh, safetyism, a culture of safetyism, a culture of 
where like children kind of have less independence and there's overprotection of children. They have less free play, um, kind of less opportunities to go out into the real world, as well as just like the overall political divide that's in America. They were specifically talking about American universities. But yeah, so I think, you know, like part of the issue of this like reaction to hard, challenging, even like offensive ideas, like talking about white supremacy and and considering all of the nuances of race and gender and identity and all of that. Um, I think like they make a good argument as to kind of where that comes from. Um, but I think, yeah, the challenge is not being so um, like ideological about it and taking a step back and, and kind of remembering what those untruths are and going, no, like human beings are fundamentally not fragile people. We are meant to be challenged. We are meant to be resilient um, and to be able to like think about those hard things and, and, and overcome it. And that is kind of the, the idea of the university should be a space to talk about things that yeah might offend us that we might not personally agree with and to to get to the bottom of it and to be able to argue why it's wrong rather than saying oh it's wrong because it hurts my feelings and I need to play with play-doh now to feel better like no you should challenge yourself to feel better by like using reason and logic to go no this isn't right because x y and z that I read um so yeah it's definitely an interesting kind of place that we're in culturally as far as like with the yeah woke culture like social social justice advocates who obviously want something good but maybe the way that they're trying to achieve it right now is is clashing with what the idea of the university should be and so it's a challenge for sure and yes, then i just want to be the really quick just to tie all of that no, no, go that for it because I wanted to really drive home. The reason we bring up all of that is not because we want to get on board with this, oh, there's no free speech and there's no real critical thinking in the universe. No, the point is to say that the role I have and the role that you have is complicated because if that dialogue can't happen in the university, are we the ones who are supposed to host it? And the thing is, is I have to make decisions at the end of the day as an individual because I'm not an institution. If I was an institution, I could easily, in a sort of sense, more easily facilitate that kind of diversity. And it's like, I, at the end of the day, I have to, I, I, I have my own limits on what I'm comfortable with um, associating with. And so, um, you know, like, uh, Chad Haig is an, is a, one of the people who's been around for a long time doing philosophy stuff on YouTube. And I appreciate a lot of the stuff that he puts out and he feels called to put stuff out that deals with, um, dangerous forbidden texts and fair enough. And I could have a, and I've learned from the stuff that he puts out. And I think that there's probably a lot of great people in his community. Um, but I have to make decisions about like what I do. And at the end of the day, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do anything related to the Unabomber because I'm not trying to attract an audience of people who are at that point. That's not my calling. And I have to make that decision. But I think that a university should, you know, I think that there's, there ought to be a class uh, within the university scene for dealing with texts like that. You know, uh, where is Spangler? 
I read it. I read a text by the Unabomber when I was at McMaster University History Department. I, I mean, it's 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 you know, it, it, and I appreciated that it was on offer. I could I could read the the manifesto. I mean, I, yes. I think even the, I, I took a Nazi Germany class where we could. I mean, we read Mein Kampf, right? I mean, yeah. That, I mean, exactly. that's me at the university. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and but and but then it comes back to okay, but what are what are my goals and how are my goals or my my levels of comfort dealing with certain topics? How is that going to how does that become an ethical uh, quandary? Because I'm not an institution, I am at the end of the day a person, you know. And so that's something I mean, that I've just got to work. We are through. we are in some sense because it's so early days. There is a, a great deal of vulnerability in 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 putting yourself out there, and there is this question of, you know, like. There is an infinite number of things you could teach, but the question is what what you know what you put forward is also establishing a certain image and ideal, right? Like to start to, to start like for like let me I'll talk about me first, but like I mean you doing a, a a course on the idea of the university says something. You there's millions of books. I mean you picked mm. one specific book and it says something about what theory underground stands for and represents. Just like if right. you teach about the Unabomber, it says something about what you stand for and represent in some sense. Like you pick that. You, you could have picked right. many texts, right? So like for me with Philosophy Portal, I started with Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit. That's a cornerstone. That's a foundation stone for what I want Philosophy Portal to build out and represent, right? I'm, I'm, I'm teaching something there actually, what the, what the Phenomenology of Spirit represents as a text. Because within, you come into the Phenomenology of Spirit course, we can talk about anything, but we're studying the phenomenology of spirit. And that's the discourse which you're limited by if you come into this space, just like if you come into the science of logic space or you come into the thus spoke Zarathustra space, we can talk about anything. I mean, Nietzsche is a very controversial figure. I mean, you want to talk about Nietzsche? We can talk about all the controversial stuff about Nietzsche, all you, all you like. You're going to teach on Heidegger and being in time? Well, lots of controversial yeah. things to talk about Heidegger's political life, right? Like, I mean, there's no limit to it. And you could host those discussions, right? Within that container of being in time. But like what phenomenology of spirit stands for and represents is that that text is supposed to teach you about the coming to be of a philosopher. So that's what philosophy portal stands for. Philosophy portal stands for the coming to be the philosopher. So when you teach, for example, the idea of the university, I take that to be a similar type of gesture. I think, that, yeah, go ahead. No, I love that. I, you know, it's this is so early for me, and I'm, I'm still having trouble articulating things like my role. And I think that you just really nailed it. And you didn't say the word branding, but it, it comes down to branding because these are platforms in the attention economy. People won't remember who you are if you don't have a brand. You can't even have a, if you have a name, you have a brand because that is the context that our name is presented in. So even though we don't want it to be like profit driven, we still have to exist in this context and even to be remembered is to be a brand. And so for me, I've been anti-brand, anti-influencer now for like three years. I went from kind of trying to do it to then becoming right. so critical of, of my own self and my attempt. And now I'm coming out of that again and just kind of going, okay, it's a brand. I'm just not going to take it so seriously. And I'm not an influencer. My job is an educator. That's the, the change there. But the, but it, what is a brand at the very, at the very sort of uh, outside of the, the context of business, when we're just talking about attention, and we're talking about signifiers. We're talking about the sense 
that a signifier takes on? What gives it the connotation and the denotation that the signifier takes on? It, it's the it's the things that it's brought into association with. Semiotics, basic semiotics is that there's not just words self-standing in themselves on their own, atomized. Words are only made sense of and they only get their sense through association to other ones. And say the same thing goes with all signifiers, not just words. But, you know, my face, my, the, you know, the name theory underground, I, what, what are people going to associate that with? Okay. And, and then the, 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 the books that we read, the primary books that are, that, that that's going to be the, 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 you're right. That's the, probably the most important part right there. We can talk about anything, but that's I, the I most important like thing. I feel like instead of getting into flame wars online about arguing with people, all that's nonsense, not getting into flame wars and arguments like stuff like that. To me, it's about the concrete idea and the, the, the text we put out and the stuff we put out is the concrete idea. It speaks for itself. That's what we're standing for. That's the direction you're going with. That's the train, so to speak. You want to get on yeah. the train, you can get on the train, you want to get off the train, you can get off the train. But this, but this, yeah. this, this is the train. And, and so, you know, I, I think that you do have to make these fundamental decisions, which at the end of the day, come down to value judgments, which you're making as a single, as, as, as an educator, as an instructor, right? Like, I mean, Carl Jaspers and the idea of the university talks about how, you know, the most mature, the most experienced, the most intelligent professors, when, that th when they teach courses, that summarize a body of work, that's one of the most valuable functions in the university. And at the end of the day, that comes down to those, the value judgments of that professor and that that professor through their wisdom, through their experiences, communicating that and wants to share that and create that culture in the world. And it, and it is more than them. It's a part of a subculture, which is being built and it stands for something, right? Like, so for example, again, I'll speak like, for example, with the direction of philosophy portal is that, you know, it, it, what does it stand for? It stands for bringing topics of phenomenology, bringing topics of existentialism, bringing topics of logic, deep logic into the forefront, you know, and, 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 and standing for that and trying to build a deeper discourse in that. But I feel like for a second, we should go back a little bit to what Anne brought up as it relates to the coddling of the American mind. So she brought up three aspects of the coddling of the American mind is the, an us versus them mentality, um, a what a, you know that the, the what might kill you makes you weaker instead of stronger, um, and to trust your feelings, and and I, I want to know, and I also there's actually something else after that she said that I thought was really really salient, which is that students felt physically unsafe because of talking about controversial ideas, and I think at least what I like when I'm trying to foreground things like phenomenology, existentialism, and logic, I feel like we have to create a culture where um, talking about controversial ideas does not have an effect on an effective level of your physical safety. And to me, what that, what that signifies is that you haven't actually been in a culture which builds up the idea, like that yeah. talks about the idea, because if you build up and talk about the idea, then you're so robust that talking about controversial ideas doesn't make you feel physically unsafe. What it means is, is that people, if people are feeling physically unsafe, it's because they have no idea. Like that they actually have physical affects as a consequence of that. So I think that that's also, this says that's also a very interesting theoretical, uh, interesting thing to think is that mm -hmm. if you yeah. don't have a culture, which builds up the idea, your body is not going to be able to withstand the culture war. Yeah, for sure. 
that's one thing I want to, I, that I, I was also thinking when you were talking about that uh, and, and that it goes right along with that is the, I'd say the thread that they leave out um, and can you verify that they leave this out? Do they ever talk about litigation culture? I think a little bit. It's definitely not like a section of the book, I don't think, as far as like why they see it. But I think like it definitely is covered a bit. Cool. So what I was going to say is that the left since the 60s has learned that social change is made by making bureaucrats uncomfortable and scared of lawsuits. So then bureaucrats affect change because they're scared. And so obviously you can only cry wolf for so long though. The issue is that on the one side, people don't have the idea. And so then they just, they just feel things and they vibe, but then they are encouraged and incentivized just to vibe because the only theory of social change they have is that it comes from administrators being scared of lawsuits. So it's no longer about, is it dangerous? It's, it's, it's just, are, is it plausible to the administrators that these students actually feel threatened? If it's plausible to the administrators that these students actually feel threatened, then these administrators have to do something because of litigation culture. And so students are actually being incentivized to become more unreasonable and more in touch with how they feel about something and then exaggerating it. And obviously I'm not saying everybody who's having strong feelings is exaggerating. And the thing is, is you can feel very strong feelings and still do reasonable dialogue and, and, and still keep researching. Um, so I'm not saying those things are mutually exclusive, but yeah, the, the, the incentive is there to not think and to instead just feel bigly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually, so one of my, one of my favorite parts um, uh, or one of my favorite aspects of the phenomenology of spirit is actually in the preface. And for anyone who hasn't read the preface of that book, definitely give it some time, read the, the preface. preface. The preface, the preface is my favorite book. It's I so can good. probably just say the preface. It's, of it's, that book, it's so good. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a masterpiece. And one of the aspects of the preface that I like is when he emphasizes this distinction, and I always highlight in this in the course, is that this relationship between um, intuitive immediacy and the results of the concept. And I feel like what's happened with uh, sort of like the idea falling out of our culture and dialectical logic not being taught and thought and not building up the idea in our head is that what we're left with is just immediate intuition. So feeling bigly. Right. Like, like whatever you're, you know, like you, yeah. so you have an you have an immediate intuition that something's bad. You have an immediate intuition that something's wrong, but you actually don't have the concept for it. You just feel bigly. And so this feeling bigly just throws itself around. And so what's at stake, I think, in, in education, and this is actually I'll connect this, connect this to the science of logic, because Hegel goes on at length in the in the preface of the science of logic to say that actually the point of logic is not abstract disembodied formalism. The point of logic is actually to constrain and process the instincts. And so actually, if you have a culture which isn't trained in logic, you have a culture which is not capable of, let's say in psychoanalytic terms, sublimating the instinct and, and mm. actually getting to the point of a drive. So 
so for example, you might have a culture which actually doesn't have the idea of marriage anymore because it hasn't learned how to sublimate instinct and it can't think the idea of marriage. Right. So all of these things are like super important is like, why would I study the science of logic? Why would I spend so much time with this incredibly difficult text? Well, your entire life might actually depend on it, because if you don't actually study logic, you're never going to actually learn how to sublimate instinct. And you're going to be basically a nutcase that needs an analysis for the rest of your life. And you're just mm. going to be feeling, and you're just going to be feeling bigly everywhere. And you're not, you're going to see everything as really dangerous when actually it might not be that dangerous. It might just be an idea that you could actually learn something. Right. So all of these things, like they're connected, right. Ultimately at the end of the day, if philosophy falls out of society, well, we better have some underground theory. <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. Okay, so maybe connecting that um, to to um, a question and this bringing it back to the idea of the university in the book and Carl Jaspers is, tell us, who is Carl Jaspers and why should, if we haven't already sort of made it clear, why should we care about the idea of the university as a book, as a text? Dave, I'll let you cover... First starting with who is Carl Jaspers. Yeah, maybe Dave, you can cover kind of who Jaspers is, since I think you know a little bit more and like his relation to some other theorists. Yeah, so... I love I love everything. That you, I'm glad you brought in the preface there, by the way, right? Mm. And, and, and I was actually... Something I was already going to say was about how Jaspers lacks name recognition in the United States and that we could have started this off by focusing on Heidegger, Marx, Lacan, Zizek, uh, Deleuze and Guattari, like some of the bigger, bigger names. I mean, I could have even gone with a rent, one of my favorites, but she, she's, she's also less name, name brand worthy um, than these other people I just listed. Jasper's less than her. Um, and I, I keep saying Jaspers because someone corrected me on it one time when I said Jaspers, and then I looked <laughs> up online and it, it actually said that it, um, it, when I looked up the pronunciation online, it said Jaspers. But then when I just played it a little bit ago, listen, Carl Jaspers. So Google tells me that it's Jaspers when I look. So I think that you're saying it correctly. Google, Google is Google is uh, xenophobic and ethnocentric because it's biased to the Anglophone pronunciation, right? It's picked up the Anglophone pronunciation. It's, oh, it's Yeah, but the, the YouTube pronunciation no. guy just said it as well. And I think you're right about this. Oh, Jaspers. So I don't know who, so here I have been plugging this course and I've been saying Jaspers because whenever I went to the internet and got confirmation on what that person had told me, that put me under the impression it's definitely Jaspers, but whatever, it's Jaspers. Hey, at the end of the day, even if it was Jaspers, saying Jaspers, which is like people would say that would be an anglification, even if it was an anglification, anglifications are okay. They're anti-elitist inherently. And so I don't say Kierkegaard or Kierkegaard. I say Kierkegaard, you know, but people say it's Kierkegaard. It's like, okay, well, you, you, yeah, we all draw a line somewhere. People say Nietzsche, people say Nietzsche. That one's pretty controversial. Everyone says Kierkegaard. My but stance, anyway, so my stance is that we my stance is that we shouldn't overreact when someone mispronounces a name. Let's just focus on who's the man, Carl Jaspers. Jaspers. 
Thank you. Yeah. So Carl Jaspers was probably the most, most influential existentialist in the German scene besides Heidegger. Heidegger and Carl Jaspers are the two fathers of existentialism. Now, obviously we see some, of there would be no existentialism without Kierkegaard, Pascal, Nietzsche, and to some degree Schopenhauer. So those four though, make up the, uh, the, the 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 tool house or the tool shed the 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 tools in the in the in the tool shed that uh Jaspers and Heidegger are working with now um Heidegger in being in time barely mentions Kierkegaard explicitly uh which is really too bad and that might be his german ethno nationalist kind of priorities people say so People say that his Eastern influences, his Dutch influences, et cetera, tend to go unacknowledged and that he really wants to build up off of the shoulders of specifically German thinkers. And that that's fair enough. Um, but obviously, when we think of the parts in Being in Time where uh, Heidegger's talking about Das Mann, average everydayness, falling, curiosity, ambiguity, and uh, sort of ironic detachment and and not really having a basis uh in the things themselves or trying to instead just kind of going off of what one says the scripted nonsense that people tend to inculcate and participate in that's all coming from Kierkegaard right and so uh, Heidegger's making it his his own he's taking all of these existentialists then he's taking philology hermeneutics uh and, and he's bringing all these other things into uh, he's trying to build I, I don't want to say synthesize but he's trying to build a sort of system a philosophical system that can make sense of all these kind of niche fields and niche insights and Kierkegaard Nietzsche two examples of people who have a lot of insights but no systematized theory and what Heidegger does which really sets him apart and gets him remembered is the fact that he put so much thought into how do we bring all this together into a coherent deconstruction of modernity. But the thing is, is when he does that, he's also piggybacking off of Carl Jaspers or Jaspers. Jaspers is uh, one of the most influential existentialists, but also psychiatrists of the 20th century. So, you know, he does literary criticism. He does philosophy, but he also does psychology. And the fact that he's basically got a doctorate in each of those three things is in itself astonishing and interesting. But then biographically, before we get into his work, um, biographically, he was married to a Jew, a Jewish woman, and he did not flee uh, during the, uh, the occupation of Germany by the Nazi regime. And so um, he actually kind of, even though he was a pretty well-known public figure, he chose to make a stand and to be against the regime. And if he had suffered consequences, he was going to, he would have taken that, but he was kind of a big figure and he played his cards somewhat carefully. And so uh, he ended up not getting killed. Um, But after the, after the, after Nazis were defeated, is when he writes the idea of the university as a series of lectures that are dedicated to one of the presidents of one of the universities in Germany at the time. And the idea of the university, it it says, 
it says to the so-and-so, so-and-so president, so-and-so in charge or responsible for the reconstruction of the university. Well, why does the university need to be reconstructed? It's because people who were openly anti-Nazi ideology had been weeded out of the university system and the administration for the most part had been fully culpable. Um, it had actually had a significant role in uh, lending some legitimacy to Hitler's regime. And so Jaspers is saying, look, totalitarianism on the one side from Stalinists and Hitlerists on both sides, um, the university is constantly suffering from these kind of totalitarian political interests trying to get people to make every course about Marxism, Leninism, or about the German nationalist vision for the future or whatever. And, and Jaspers is saying, no, like we, we have to make room for people like that to posit their ideas and be critiqued in public. Otherwise it'll go underground. But we also have to be aware that it's not just the, the, the enemies of free thinking and the pursuit of truth is not just going to come from the Nazis or from the Stalinists. It's also going to come from business interests, right? And so that's what he's talking about there. But what he's known for is philosophy of life, right? He was a charismatic and powerful uh, orator. You know, when I think of, I, I don't just think of him as a theorist. I think of him as uh, probably one of the most influential orators in the university scene. People who went to his lectures were forever changed. And uh, people who went to his lectures, Husserl's lectures, Heidegger's lectures, went on to try to become that themselves. And so, though though Heidegger and uh, gets some uh, name recognition or you know some engagement from the French, uh, from the post-war French scene, uh, Jaspers doesn't get very much. And I, the the main reason Heidegger gets any at all is because you know, they all want to find a way to critique him. And usually they critique him on something insubstantial, like, uh, like Levinas saying, Dasein never eats soup. You know, this is, it's in totality and infinity. It's what it's actually, I mean, he's getting at something really important, right? Um, well, I, I think one of, the, one of the, one of the strongest criticisms against uh, Heidegger and Dasein is that the Dasein seems non-sexual. Yeah. He's actually in the world and uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, Dasein never has a childhood. Dasein right. never eats. Dasein doesn't love to eat soup. Dasein well, doesn't. doesn't Dasein doesn't, is not a subject, right? Dasein's not a subject. Yeah, that's right. Talking about it's, something maybe post-subjective or something like that, or it's supposed well, to be go too far afield with that. But I think there's so so many interesting here connections between Carl Jaspers as a man and sort of like maybe. I like the way you're emphasizing this. So I think I bring it up is like the difference in their actual orientation to um, the contingency of being in the country where Nazism took over and they had different ethical relationships to that event, which is, yeah. uh, you know, some people would say, you know, can you read that at different ethical stance into their actual philosophical work. Like, you know, and, and then in regards to Heidegger being mostly a deconstruction of modernity, which does open up the possibility for things to fill that vacuum. You know, you deconstruct modernity, something's gonna fill that. It might not necessarily be better than what you deconstructed. Whereas Carl Jaspers, the idea of the university is more of a reconstruction in the mess of that deconstruction. Mm -hmm. like, so mm -hmm. I, I think maybe that's an interesting thing to riff on for a bit. 
Yeah. And, you know, Heidegger had a vision for a renewed reconstructed kind of university that would not be subservient to science or scientism or technologization or instrumentalization. He had that vision and yeah. he thought the only way to advance that vision was by becoming a rector of the university. And the only, you know, he wouldn't have been able to do anything he did or even attempt to without becoming rector. And to become rector, he had to take on membership in the party. And then later they take away his membership. And while he was there, he stopped people from burning the books by Jewish authors. So it's not like he was just like, ah, I fucking hate Jews. Send them all to camps, right? Like he wasn't like that. Though in his black notebooks, you do find there is a line in there about international Jewry. So to some degree, he was using that language in his private thought. Now, how, how serious it went, who knows? But he did take a public stand against the book burnings. And so he's a conflicted character. And I think that it's the it's that conflict. It's on the one side, people read him to be edgy. On the other side, people read him because it's you get some lefty street cred if you can read Derrida, say how Heidegger influenced Derrida, and then do a Derridian critique of Heidegger. That's some street cred, and rightfully so. And so if you want to get into Foucault, Derrida, Levinas, Merleau-Ponty, Sartre, de Beauvoir, like any of these people, you're going to have to get that basis in Heidegger. The, the problem is, is they're not – you don't – it's hard to make the same argument with Carl Jaspers. And so that's why I'm saying that he doesn't have that name recognition. It's because he's not as controversial. He's not as sexy or dangerous to struggle with, to fight with, to think through. No one's like sitting there reading between the lines with Jaspers being like, well, what's he really doing here? You know, the, the, the most you might find of that is like a Marxist Leninist. Well, actually a good example would be George Lukacs thinks that Jaspers is a reactionary romantic figure uh, because he just doesn't like existentialism because it's not Marxist-Leninist. So Jaspers comes into this critique from totalitarian ideology because he's arguing that there needs to be a space that's dedicated to truth-seeking, objectivity, neutrality, uh, allowing different voices and viewpoints that are intolerant to speak. And the, the totalitarian line is always, oh, well, if you're going to let that person speak though, then you're supporting that person. And so that is kind of the critique that someone might put against Jaspers, but he doesn't get any more serious engagement than that. And so I don't think Lukacs should be the end of the story on this. And that Jaspers, what he is known for, I just want to bring it back to the, what he's actually known for. Sure. It drives me absolutely crazy. This word Weltenschwung, uh, which is the German for worldviews. World yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I believe that it's Hegel who really starts saying like philosophy is not just having a Weltanschauung, right? right? There's a, there's a difference between doing philosophy and constructing a worldview or, or in a world religions class, when they teach all these different worldviews in a sort of sense, it's like a survey of Weltanschauungs. Yeah, but that's not philosophy, right? No. Philosophy is asking the harder questions about what's real. How do we know what's good? How do we know, you know? Okay. Well, Jaspers wants to still do a psychology of worldviews. And what drives me crazy is I can't speak enough or I can't read enough German at this point in my development with German to read him in his original. And his most important book is The Psychology of Worldviews, has not been translated. I'm locked out. And that really sucks. But, you know, one of my bigger goals is to be able to someday read it. 
Right on. Um, but without being able to read that, he, I, I would say he's most well known for the lectures and books that he wrote on Nietzsche. Uh, one of them being Nietzsche, an introduction to the understanding of his philosophical activity. If it wasn't for that work, Nietzsche would have been forever associated with reactionary German ideas, right? Jaspers came forward as a sort of progressive figure who said, no, there is a wealth of stuff we're thinking about and engaging with here and that he's not reducible to some bad takes. So that's one of his big things. He also just does the uh, two books um, is reason and ex- and existence with a Z as well as uh, there's another one about existence. Oh, philosophy of existence. These are two of the most fundamental uh, popularizations of the importance of the turn, the post Hegelian turn that comes through Kierkegaard and Nietzsche. And so basically, you know, when people think existentialism, they turn to Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus. They turn to uh, the, the short book, which was really just lectures by Sartre called Existentialism as a Humanism. And they turn to the myth of Sisyphus by Albert Camus. Okay, that's not where to go. The place to go is reason and existence or philosophy of existence by Carl Jaspers. And so I, I, in a sort of sense, I can say I've never read him because I haven't read him three times. And I think that great philosophy bears repeating. And I'm, I'm, But I'm at this point where I'm saying, look, I think that existentialism gets pigeonholed as being Sartre's philosophy or it gets pigeonholed as being absurdism through Camus. Neither of them are half as based in this stuff as Jaspers. And more importantly, Jaspers took that courageous stand. And so I just think that if we're going to go to philosophy and, and think, okay, but what is existentialism? Then we ought to be reading Jaspers. And if we're going to do Heidegger, great, but do it alongside Jaspers. You know, one of the interesting things that might be good to bring up here is that when you think of the existentialists, when you think about Kierkegaard, when you think about Nietzsche, when you think about um, the long lineage that you already brought up there, a lot of the things that come up there, uh, specifically as a, I would say, a Hegelian reaction is kind of a, an emphasis on existence over ideas or an emphasis on existence over logic. And right. I don't really detect that in Jaspers, to be honest. Like I, well, specifically, he is talking about an idea. He's talking about the university and he's doing it in a way that seems to more closely wed existence and ideas. And like, that's also happening on a meta level, like we were talking about, like, the idea of the university is being situated in a very historical, contingent, contextual um, moment where that idea needed to be thought, specifically mm. in the reconstruction of university life in Germany. So I think that's another important aspect is that I think, in my opinion, too much is made of like, say, for example, the meta-level conflict between a Kierkegaard and a Hegel or a Schopenhauer and a Hegel as it relates to existence and ideas. And I definitely appreciated in my reading of Jasper's the way in which he is an existentialist and situated in an existential context talking about the idea. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, so just that, that, that relationship, that schism, I would say, between existentialism, thinking about raw experience on the one hand, and logic, thinking about 
I don't know, syllogisms, mathematics, mechanisms, tele you know, those things, you know, there needs to be, I would say in a Hegelian sense, a more unity of the opposites when it comes to those two dimensions of life. Like Jasper has actually made a point, and this is a problem with like perhaps the historical field of maths or the historical field of logic. But he says, he says, uh, except mathematicians and logicians, everyone needs regular contact with experience. And I think that, you know, from a, from a, from a science of logic point of view, I think Hegel would say uh, even logicians, you know, in terms of the coming to be of their notion, need contact with experience or else it's just dead abstraction. So, yeah, just getting those two, you know, dimensions to be thought dialectically, I think is important. And I don't know if you have any uh, anything to say about your sort of experience with with reading Carl Jaspers, or um, if you had anything you wanted to say in relationship to this conversation. Yeah, I just think you know you had initially asked like why is this text important? I think something that we've kind of touched on throughout our conversation is like ideas, idea, an idea of something is so important. If we lose that, like we're lost, and so thinking about the idea of the university versus just like the university and how it currently exists will then help us think about, like thinking of the idea helps us think about how it currently exists. Thinking about the idea of the university really puts into perspective why the having an institution for seeking truth and the pursuit of knowledge and the unifying of all of these different fields is important and why it should be like why it should exist and so as someone who like genuinely believes in the pursuit of truth and knowledge and who wants to have these difficult conversations I am like upset that I didn't encounter the idea of the university in any of my university classes like I'm so happy I finally found it and can use it to kind of back like back up what I already believe but then also really understand it in, in all of its nuances and kind of have a better idea for you know what the university should look like and, and it really just I think builds some hope for like why why there should be college like why why we should go and and kind of in that practical sense it's just hopeful for well, there is an idea. So long as that idea is talked about and discussed, there is hope for the university. And so I'm really excited to kind of get to continue talking about it with you and Brian, who has his own experiences, and then Dave, obviously, and whoever else wants to join the class, because we all obviously have our critiques of the university. Um, but then kind of using those along with Jasper's ideas will just be really useful to kind of conceptualize a university and, and truth seeking in our society. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, I think that there's, there's another aspect of what you, you were both talking about in regards to, um, and specifically Dave, you, you were bringing up this philosophy is not a worldview. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and that, that this, 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 I think bears, um, repeating in, a, in, a, in our context, because I, I do often feel like what happens with the culture wars is that what's going on are there, there are worldviews in competition, you know, like, you know, whatever those worldviews are, but, 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 you know, but the actually philosophy is not a worldview is that it's, 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 it's more of a, um, way of knowing 
or a way of approaching thought or a way of a way of thinking as opposed to 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 a, a worldview or a systemic structure and um you know what, what do you what do you think that this this um this idea you know how do you think this idea impacts perhaps the way you want to teach uh, or the types of discussions you want to facilitate um and the type of like life you want to cultivate let's say or discussions you want to cultivate at uh theory underground and specifically here you know maybe inspired by carl jaspers as a foundation you're really good at this like interviewing thing you're asking really good questions these are questions that like i'm like my god no one's just ever asked me <laughs> No one's just asked me that point Dave, blank. That's what do you think, question. Dave? What do you think about the ultimate nature of reality? Like, can you give yeah. us a little soundbite? No. <laughs> yeah, let me let me actually give you the quick the the quick and dirty here. Uh, so, I have a Substack still under NS Plebe. I'll probably change the name of it to Theory Underground when I get around to it. Uh, but I put a blog post out on that like three months ago, and it's this blog post is somewhere on my website, hard to find. I have to do a little working it out to make it accessible. Uh, I'll promise to do it this weekend. Okay. But the, 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 the title is something about like theory versus ideology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people use philosophy and theory interchangeably when mm, that, you know, even Zizek sometimes uses them interchangeably. And I, I'm not so sure I want to do that because theory is almost always a lot more like, uh, having a sense for what needs to be done or developed theoretically, and then, then putting everything into developing that, having a certain set of operating assumptions in place. And usually the operating assumptions, are, some of them are explicit, other ones are just implicit and maybe unbeknownst to the author. And so the difference between uh, theory and ideology in this sense is that a theorist has to have operating assumptions explicit and implicit the but but after that theorist dies and people have had to fight to keep that person's name alive for others those operating assumptions stop being operating assumptions and become dogmas at the point that they become dogmas and this is you know you see this especially in psychoanalysis in the aftermath of uh freud um, but you, uh, Marxism is a perfect example of it as well. You know, he had a lot of operating assumptions in play. Some were onto something, some were not onto something. Some made right. sense when he was writing others don't make sense anymore. Um, but you, you, then you have people arguing about what the orthodox Marxist take is instead of trying to think would, would he have come to this conclusion today? And more importantly, should we? Right. Like that's not even that's not even a question anymore. And so uh, the, for me, the difference comes down to thinking, thinking fundamental questions and, de and developing an intimate relation to concepts, learning to live through concepts and see and process through concepts versus learn memorizing what one who believes X, Y and Z is supposed to say. Or like, for instance, uh, anything that any ism. If there's an ism, then, you know, oh, oh I'm a realist. I, I believe in realism or I believe in materialism or I believe in idealism or I believe in utilitarianism or I believe in deontology. All of these are examples of isms that come out of philosophy but become dogmatic ideological worldviews where people go to philosophy class basically 
they find out that there's this age-old distinction between empiricism and rationalism, between utilitarianism and deontology. And then the, they think the task is to come up with their own unique position in that binary. You either take a hard side on one of the, one of the two sides, or you take up some kind of a, of, of a stance between the two. Oh, free will versus determinism. Perfect example. Okay. Well, I just, you're saying, to bring it back to your question, you know, how does this influence my teaching or how I approach these things with others? For me, the question is never, which ism are you committed to, or are you here to defend? And if a person comes in with that mindset, it usually makes things difficult for us to do what we're actually there to do, which is primarily thinking. And I believe that an important part of thinking is rigorously working through seeing the world on the shoulders of some other great thinker, right? Because nothing makes us better than being around masters, people who've mastered some topic. And no, no one's mastered thinking about being as much as Heidegger when it comes to being, like thinking the difference between tools, horses, trees, rocks, God, angels, people. These are all different senses of being, yet they're all being conflated by philosophers. Okay, so someone spends their entire life engaging with all the greatest minds, but thinking nobody's thought this question through thoroughly enough. Okay, I can spend the rest of my life dabbling in that question, or I can get on the shoulders of someone who took that seriously for his entire life, right? Well, nothing's going to accelerate me as a thinker faster than doing it with the great thinker who focused on that kind of a question. If you want to think lack, you go to Lacan. No one thought lack in all of its nuance and how it, and how our subjectivity is structured by certain fundamental forms of lack more than him. Sartre for nothingness. Everyone has their, their thing. And uh, the, the question is, the, I think the question should not be, Am I a Sartrean? Am I a Heideggerian? Am I a Marxist? That's, that's something academics ask themselves so they can figure out which journals they want to publish in, so they can figure out what conferences they want to go to, so they can figure out which kind of cocktail parties they want to be at. But if we're trying to think doing philosophy, for me, I think that that would mean it's not about finding your ism. And I would say the longer you can hold off on doubling down on an ism, the better you are. And so I, I advocate for a, a time of moratorium, for a time of questioning, for a time of saying, I'm an apprentice. I'm just trying to learn from the greats right now. Thank and you. Any, oh and any, anything you want to add to that, to that sermon? Yeah, <laughs> maybe not <laughs> to that whole thing, but in, in thinking about kind of my own approach to like teaching in the future, to, to using Jasper's ideas, you know, he talks about in kind of the first um, part of the book, uh, first, I mean, first, like half of the book, really like the importance of, of research and method in, in the pursuit of knowledge and truth. And so I think like, thinking about like my own future, that's something I think I'll definitely take more seriously in terms of like, teaching especially I mean I'd love to one day teach in a high school setting kind of like Brian and, and something that Brian does he had mentioned in our uh, little meeting live stream that we had a few days ago that I admire so much kind of how he he approaches the classroom with what he knows kind of with his philosophical um, background he's an English teacher but he tells his students at the beginning of the class 
in his English class, this isn't going to be useful to you in your career. Nothing that I'm teaching you is useful in the sense, in the instrumentalized sense. It's, it is purely for your own good, for your own knowledge. So like do with that what you will. And so, and that is something that I like attempted to do in this university class that I taught was really start them off with, hey, like I'm here to help you, to be in dialogue with you, to use your brains. And maybe that wasn't as well received in that setting, but I think using these ideas to just hopefully like try to help others like understand where I'm coming from and just help them realize like, yeah, this maybe isn't useful to your future job, but I'm here because this matters to like my own humanity and my own self-actualization. And I want it to matter to you too. And if you want to go on this like intellectual journey with me, then you can, and we'll talk about hard things. And I'm going to treat you like an equal intellectual and not like a student, not like I'm better than you. We are in a dialogue here and do with that what you will. And I think my kind of teaching attitude because of that is very relaxed. I don't like to require things of people. You're either going to do it or you're not, and you're going to get an F or you're, or you're going to try and like, I'll kind of, you know, grade you on how I see you put in effort, but trying to like change the narrative. So it's not, I'm not trying to teach, I'm not trying to, you know, brainwash you in, in social science and sociology, which is kind of a, a dialogue narrative in the United States. I'm not trying to force you to learn something. I'm just here to like foster your own journey, do with that what you will. And so Jasper's really helps me like think about how to do that and think about in relation to professors and teachers that I've had in the past and oh, how did they do this well? How did they not do this well? Where were they kind of aligning with the perspectives and ideals that Yasser's puts forward and where were they maybe more on the instrumentalized neoliberal side? All right, that's fantastic. And actually, I was gonna I was gonna ask you guys what what was your what was your pit you know what's your final pitch for the course but I think Anne you yeah, I think you both did a good job of of, of framing sort of a, a nice reason for or at least a, a part of, of of why you might entertain taking the course but um, maybe maybe some final reflections then so like you know the idea of the university starts um, yeah and I'll definitely uh, leave a link in the description Saturday. yeah I, yeah I'm gonna leave a link in the description um to the to the youtube video here um so you can sign up to the course it starts this saturday like you're saying there dave uh january 14th um and it runs for just over a month is that correct it ends february 18th yes that's correct yeah, okay. so yeah so you got yes, you got yes. a court you got a course here diving into carl jasper the idea of the university starts this saturday january 14th ends february 18th you're gonna have it taught by Dave and and another uh, teacher, Brian. Is that his name? Mm -hmm. Brian. And you can find out all that information on the Theory Underground website, which will be linked below. Um, so other than that information, and I'll be taking the course as well. So if you're interested in diving in and having deeper conversations about this, just like I think, you know, I think the types of conversations we're going to be having might not be that dissimilar from the types of conversations you've been listening to over the last two hours. So maybe a uh, final takeaway for, from, from both of you, uh, are you, you know, are you looking forward to teaching the course and, and what are you looking forward to learning from either the book, deeper engagement, rereadings and the students? Yeah, I guess I'll start by saying, I'm just 
excited to like finally have an outlet to really have these rigorous conversations about truth and knowledge since I feel like I didn't fully get that in uh, my university experience. I admire like everyone who's at a teaching class or has signed up so far. I really admire everyone's backgrounds like you, Cadell and Dave, obviously, and then and Brian too. And he he just got his uh, master's in education and his thesis was like right along these lines. So it'll be really great to kind of hear everyone's uh, perspectives and experiences and then how like everyone synthesizes the the information. And so I'm just excited to kind of like go on this journey being someone who's I think relatively new to like theory, philosophy, teaching compared to like you three um, and like whoever else might take the course. I'm probably on the younger end. And so I have a lot to learn, but I definitely am excited for the discussion of it. So I really hope that we get a few more people to sign up because it's just going to be like a really important kind of foundational conversation for the theory underground why we're doing that why we care about learning like we're not just all oh, the nerds who like to read philosophy like why it why it matters to us so i'm looking forward we to are it. also that though we are we, we are, are, we are that. all oh, for sure, we all, for sure. We are. Well, let's not let's not let's not uh let... <laughs> yeah. no, that, that's great and, and dave, dave what about you hmm to wrap it up i would just say that no, Brian, no pressure we... no you already said you're not jesus you know, you're not, yeah, you're, not, yeah, yeah. you're not here to save us here. I'm gonna... Yeah, no, it's, you know, that is actually true. I don't, I feel a lot less pressure because of the way this is set up. It was, you know, with Theory Plebe, because that was kind of my nickname or alias, uh, everything I did made it kind of about me or what my take is. And so one of the nice things about the Theory Underground is that it's like, yeah, I, 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 I'm a catalyst. I make things happen. I organize like you do, it, but it's not about my takes. It's not about me influencing other people in any way, shape or form, except to do it themselves. Right. And so, but Brian Weeks is the person who Anne's referenced a couple of times in this conversation so far, he's not present. He and I have led a variety of discussion groups we've done lectures. We've, we've, we've held our own events in Boise, Idaho, where we were both living. Um, it, 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 through a, a variety of, of proto organizations, um, you know, and, and various, you know, attempts at starting something kind of like this, this is just the most recent iteration of, of this idea. And I love Brian. I think everyone else will as well. He's a very contemplative, thoughtful person who comes from a creative writing and, and poetry background who got really into philosophy because of me when he, when I was living with him and I was reading being in time and I would talk about it all the time. He was, he was like, I've never done philosophy. I think the time is to dive in right now. So I bought being in time. And I was like, you've never done philosophy, but you're going to read being in time. Not a good idea. And he's like, I don't care. I'm going to do it. And he like us gets his jouissance from difficult texts and being able to make sense of them. And so, um, you know, he, he's still really into literature and he's writing his own books and stuff right now, but he's also, he's, he's like six years into philosophy now and he read a ton of ph phenomenology last year. And so now he's getting into Jasper's because of this reading, he started reading some of other Jasper's other work. And so what I would say outside of the having so many educators involved that will be bringing their own experiences into the thing. I'm really excited to learn more about Jasper's from Brian as we go, because a part of one of his, he says, 
Jaspers keeps talking about truth, but he never actually says what he means by truth in this whole book. And so he's reading a bunch of other Jasper stuff so that in our conversations and lectures in this course, we'll be able to learn some of the details about Jasper's broader philosophy. And I'll be bringing in some of the stuff from his work on philosophy of history. So that's, I'm just excited for us to all become either Jasperians or um, to to figure out why we're not Jasperians. I I just, I, I, people know why they're not Deleuzian or people know why they're not X, Y, or Z, but I'm sorry. I want Jasper's to have a bigger role in the reconstitution of the idea of the university itself, since he obviously put his life on the line and tried to make it happen for his entire existence. Yeah, it's really interesting, to be honest, because I, you know, I didn't really have a, I knew his name, but I actually didn't have uh, any understanding of his work before hearing about your course. And I've really enjoyed the book. Um, so, um, well, first, thank you for bringing my attention and awareness to uh, an aspect of philosophy that I had no idea about. And I'm definitely um, excited just spontaneously to think about the idea of the university. I think it's for me, um, obviously close to the heart, you know, in the sense of, you know, falling in love with the university, it being an important part of my intellectual life. At the same time, living in an age where I feel like it has kind of lost its concept, lost its idea. And so, you know, doing sort of underground stuff to keep that idea alive, like you said, you know, like if, if someone's searching for truth, and they don't find in the university, they're going to drop out, but that idea is not going to die. And I think that, you know, at least for me, you know, going into the course, taking the course with you guys, it's, I suppose, a part of the larger process of keeping that idea alive and making it more concrete. And, um, you know, I I think that that's going to be that's going to be a really fun adventure. Um, And so thanks for coming on to have this conversation. I think it 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 it, um, you know, um, opened up your historical context for me it gave me a deeper insight into why this book is important now in this moment of theory underground and and um and and thanks for the people who have been him watching so with that i'm going to end the uh and end the video recording and um everyone sign up to the idea of the university starting this saturday january 14th link in the description we're out Oh, peace. Thank you.